Spring of Life Fellowship and the vision of changing the world invites you to listen to a message of restoration and strengthening for your life. Let's listen to our guest. I am so honored to be here today. God bless you. Um, I'm bringing you greetings from Olathe, Kansas, a suburb of Kansas City, uh, where the Church of the Harvest is uh, now in their second morning service. Uh, we have three services on a weekend, so we have a Saturday night service, and we have two Sunday morning services. And um, my, my pastors, I have four on my pastoral staff that are covering for me while I'm away and, and able to be with you. And I just want to say what an honor, what a blessing to be at such an authentic environment of the Spirit of God. Uh, boy, you, you just don't realize how sincere and significant it is to be in an environment where people are there with a, a true heart for God. Uh, I, I preach all over the world. I've been everywhere, and you don't find that everywhere. And so I'm just, I'm just blessed to just sit in here, just soak in it, just receive it. I'm a little under the weather. I've been fighting off something for a couple of weeks. I started my week in Denver, Colorado preaching. Then I came back to Kansas City. Then I left on Monday for Washington, D.C., and then from Washington, D.C., came here. And, uh, but it is such an honor, such a joy, such a pleasure to be here. Uh, I also want to honor your pastor, uh, Pastor Joaquin. We uh, discovered each other probably seven, eight, maybe even ten years ago uh, through a mutual friend, Jack King, uh, Faithful Men's Ministries, and uh, where we were both invited. Yeah, don't you love Jack? <clears throat> what a great man. And he and I uh, were uh, speaking together during the Faithful Men's Conference in Dallas. Uh, immediately our hearts kind of wove together. And we begin to share and talk, and we've spent many, many times down in Dallas. Uh, I've run into him in various travels. I, I ran into him in Portland, Oregon, uh, with um, Milagros and Guillermo Arguello. Uh, they were up there in Portland with uh, your pastor, and we, uh, we ran into him. I was shocked. I was stunned. I was thrilled. Uh, we I took him to dinner, and we sat, and we fellowshiped, and, every, and we keep talking on the phone. We talk regularly. And uh, I remember I... I um, Got a call about two months ago from your pastor, and he, he says, and he always so encouraging. Have you, have you noticed your pastor is very encouraging? He's so, always so encouraging. He encourages me, and he, he says, so, hey, world changer, what, how are you doing? And I'm, I'm blessed. God's good. How are you doing, pastor? Great. Everything's good. And he always says this to me. He said this for years. When are you coming to Miami? And I said, uh, when you invite me. And he said, well, he said, I, I've always invited you. I invite you every year. I said, but you never give me a date. I'm not just going to show up on your doorstep. And so he said, you go and make a date, and you come and you call me. And so I did, and, and here we are. And now he's away in Mexico. And, uh, but I am so honored by the way you're honoring him, and you have a true, authentic man of God leading this congregation, shepherding this flock, and you are blessed. <clears throat> you are blessed indeed. I also am always excited to find out that I have uh, more family in the world, and I love the fact my church, I have a church of, I don't know, it's, uh, we got a little church up in, in Olathe, Kansas, and we have about 40 ethnicities in our church, uh, 40 nations represented in our church. Uh, we're truly a, a, a multiracial, multicultural, multigenerational fellowship. 
And that always excites me. And I always like to know that I have Cuban brothers and sisters and Hispanic brothers and sisters and Nicaraguan brothers and sisters and, and Honduran brothers and sisters. And so it's always exciting to see my, my family grow. Because how many know you can pick your friends, but you're stuck with your relatives? Right? And uh, so you're stuck with me whether you like me or not. You're stuck with me, and I'm certainly stuck with you. Uh, can I share with you just a brief word that I was, uh, I came actually with a different intention. Uh, I had something entirely different in mind last night. And I got up this morning, and like I said, I've been struggling with uh, kind of trying to deal with this, uh, whatever this is I'm dealing with. And I woke up early, and the Lord really began to turn my heart to a different thought. And I want to just kind of lean into that this morning. So if you would, turn to the book of numbers. Now we're actually going to we're going to introduce the thought by reading from 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9. And and you know this verse, very familiar verse. Uh, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful Light. Now, I want to talk to you for a few minutes about being the prophetic generation. Now, when you say these two words, prophetic and generation, it depends on what culture you come from, what spiritual environment you're aware of. Uh, it can have a scary connotation. It can have an empowering connotation. It can be an intimidating convert, uh, 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 communication. But when you say the word prophetic, a lot of people run immediately to the ideas of the end times and, and our... Um, you know, our apocalyptic understanding of things, we begin to say, well, how do we dissect Daniel 12 and how do we dissect Revelation and how do we understand uh, the ends of times and is that it? And, and, and that's really not what I'm focusing on, not the idea of just kind of what our eschatology is. But I also want us to understand that when we talk about prophetic, we're talking about proclamation. We're talking about the declaration of the word of God. The one thing that God spoke to me early on in my ministry when I was learning to preach and sharing the word of God, I started when I was 20 years old. The first thing that God began to deal with me is that I wasn't supposed to stand up and talk about God. I was supposed to stand up and speak for him. Now this reality has begun to forge the way I understood how my role and my responsibility as it relates to the word of God and as it relates to the people of God and those that God would place into my life. And so I'm here not to talk about what God is or who God is, even though he's the greatest and most vast thing you and I could possibly plumb with our thoughts and our minds. But I'm here to really talk for God. I believe God has a prophetic release that he wants to bring into this church, wants to bring into your life. This is a great church. Springs of, Spring of Life is an amazing fellowship that God has created for such a time as this. That you have a prophetic intention you have a prophetic responsibility that you as a church are a representation of God's plan and purpose in your generation, which is the final component of this title. You are, you are a generational fellowship that God is reaching multi-generations through you and he's reaching your age, this season, this time, this environment, and he's placed you in Miami for a reason. Now, I, I don't know a whole lot about Miami. I live in the Midwest. I live where, you know, the, ca the cattle still roam. I live in the environment where there's wheat fields everywhere. I live, I live, in, I live in the Midwest, what they call the Bible Belt. But I, I know that Miami's got a reputation. I know that because I've watched the news and I've, I've heard how people think. And you guys know how to party like nobody knows how to party. 
And you guys know how to enjoy the hedonistic, I'm talking about the, the culture of Miami. It has this hedonistic lifestyle that it is, it is representative of. It's about luxury. It's about excess. This is the environment of Miami. It's what it's seen. But it's also the environment of, of adverse, adversity and difficulty and the clashing of cultures. And so this is all a part of what Miami is and what Miami's about. And so why would God bring this church, this fellowship, into this environment at this time? And that's your prophetic call. That's your prophetic understanding. And I believe your pastor has a great sense of that. And I'm here to just kind of help that, just kind of encourage it, kind of nudge you a little further down the road. Am I being Pentecostal in the way I'm preaching? I'm just checking. If I need to roll it back, you let me know, okay? I've heard your pastor preach, and you're, this is not un, you're not un, unaccustomed to this. <clears throat> So when you read this scripture, God is saying you're a chosen people, a royal generation, a holy people, a, his own special possession. When he's saying that, I'm convinced that God is raising up a prophetic people to show and proclaim the greatness and glory of God. Now, not just proclaim, but to demonstrate it. Our lives are to be the reflection of it. Then when we talk about miracles, we just don't talk about miracles, we see miracles. That when we talk about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, we just don't talk about them. We actually see them. They're demonstrated. When we talk about salvation, it's experience. When we talk about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, it's experience. When we talk about the, the presence of the Holy Spirit, people are confronted. They are literally liquefied in the presence of God, and they melt before him like the mountains melt like wax at the presence of the Lord, that we see this dynamic environment of the move of God that literally superfluates everything that is going on. It saturates our lives. It saturates our consciousness. It saturates our experience, and it begins to transform us into a people that become the proclamation of God in the midst of a generation. Is anybody hearing that? Now, when we think about this prophetic people, God gives us an Old Testament type, an Old Testament shadow that depicts this probably as good as anything that we could find. And it's found in the book of Numbers. So I want you to turn to Numbers chapter 6. And we're just going to read a few verses of Scripture. Now you'll know this. Uh, I'm sure your pastor has spoken of this. I'm sure you've heard uh, this kind of teaching before. But I'm just going to try to maybe give you a, a couple fresh new insights on the idea of the Nazarite. And they are the perfect model, the, the perfect symbol and type of the New Testament prophetic generation. And so we're going to read the story of the Nazarite consecration, the Nazarite vow, and it's found starting in verse uh, 1 of chapter 6 of Numbers. If you're there, say amen. All right, now for the five of you that haven't said amen yet, we're giving you time to find it. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when either a man or woman consecrates an offering to make a vow of a Nazarite to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and similar drink. He shall drink neither vinegar made from wine nor vinegar made from similar drink. Neither shall he drink any grape juice nor eat any fresh grapes. I'm reading for the New King James. Or raisins. All the days of his separation he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine from seed <clears throat> to skin. All the days of his vow of his separation no razor shall come upon his Head until the days are fulfilled for which he separated himself to the Lord. He shall be holy, then he shall let the locks of his hair grow, uh, the, lock, the locks of the hair of his head grow. All the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not 
go near a dead body, he shall not make himself unclean even for his father or for his mother or for his brother or his sister when they die because his separation to God is on his head. And the final verse, verse 8, that I want to share with you is all the days of his separation, he shall be holy, <coughs> excuse me, to the Lord. Now the word Nazarite literally means, in Hebrew, literally means to separate, to set apart, to consecrate, to dedicate. Now the Nazarite vow was a unique vow. It was a vow that was a free will vow. In other words, uh, except for three examples that I'm going to share with you in a moment from, from uh, uh, the scriptures, it was a vow that you took because you wanted to take it. There was something that you were longing to experience from God, and so there were essentially two reasons why people took the Nazarite vow. And they would determine the length of that vow. But whenever you determined to take the Nazarite vow, there were three requirements that absolutely had to happen. You had to have no wine. You couldn't take anything from the grape, whether it was seed or skin or a grape or wine or grape juice or anything that was diluted or concocted of a grape, okay? So you couldn't even use a raisin, eat a raisin. It was impossible. If you were going to be under a Nazarite vow, you could not enjoy wine at any level or the grape at any level. The second thing was you had to let your hair grow. Now, for uh, women, that might not seem like a problem, but for men, it was an issue back then. Uh, the third one was you could not go around a dead body for any reason, even if it was somebody as near and dear to you as your father, your your mother, your brother, your sister, a wife, a child, you were not allowed to go near a dead body. Now, you don't think that's a big deal, but in that culture, it's a huge deal. Now, when, you, when I say those three things, there were two essential reasons why you would become a Nazarite. The first one would be because you were looking for victory over something, and you wanted to dedicate. You, you and I today might find ourselves fasting for this purpose. We might uh, go to the Lord and fast and, and, and you know, go to a water-only fast or we would fast TV or we would fast something in our life that we enjoyed so that we could maybe break through something that we were struggling with. And so a Nazarite was saying, you know what, I'm tired of fighting this battle on my own. I'm tired of trying to uh, find the victory. I'm going, to, I'm going to synagogue. It's not helping me. I'm going to the temple. I'm offering offerings. But for some reason, I'm not quite breaking through. I still got the this habit. I've still got this behavior. I've still got this addiction. I've still got this problem, and I don't know how to break through it. And so they would go to a new place where they'd say, you know what? I'm realizing in my own strength, I can't break through. So I'm going to, I'm going to give myself wholly to God and see what he can do when I surrender myself fully to him. The second reason you would do it is because you were looking to honor God with your life. You were realizing that there was a higher call, and to put yourself in a position to elevate yourself spiritually, you would take this vow to go to that place. So these were the two primary reasons why you would take the vow. Now, in the New Testament, the Nazarite was literally what we would call the living sacrifice of the Old Testament. Romans, we all know what Romans chapter 12 one says, I beg of you. By the mercies of God that you do what? You present your bodies a living sacrifice. See, the Nazarite was a living sacrifice. He was living, uh, denying himself things that were critical to the culture and the environment in which he lived. And he says, listen, I want you to, I want you to present your bodies what? Living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is what? Your reasonable act of worship. So this is the way we worship God. It's not just how we sing it's not whether the chords are right or we got beautiful singers. It's not just, come on, it's not just the tempo of a song. That's not worship, folks. That's only a part of worship. That's the celebration of our regular acts of worship. When we gather together, we worship. Come on, we worship. We celebrate how we've given our lives to God all week. We celebrate how God has magnified himself through us. 
We celebrate how God has lived his life through us, how we've seen him overcome adversities and break through problems and reveal his glory and how he's manifested his presence on our everyday lives. Come on, our worship is an everyday expression. It's an everyday experience, right? Come on, God's looking for people that are worshiping him in what? Spirit and in truth. So it's the way we live our lives every day. Now, when we come to the Nazarite vow, the vow is, like I said, it's a, wander, a voluntary, willful decision accompanied by specific action in direct obedience to a, 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 a conviction or a consecration to give yourself to the Lord. Now, the three basic requirements, as I've already shared with you, are there was no wine. Now, you might say, what does that represent? Wine represents in the Old Testament and throughout the Bible. Uh, I'm into lots of type and symbols here, so just kind of hang in here with me. Wine represents... Um, fullness, celebration, accomplishment, success, and it is, in essence, intoxicating by nature. All right, everybody hear that? How many's ever drunk too much wine in your old life? In your old life, you drunk too much wine. Yeah, and, and what does it do to you? It, it, it intoxicates you. It's intoxicating by nature. Okay, now here's what's important to understand, that, that, that when wine was a part of the entire biblical culture of the Old Testament, in fact, there were actual offerings that you could bring to God where you would pour out wine in a celebration or a thank offering to the Lord. That when they would celebrate their Shabbat services or they would celebrate their various feast days, they would drink wine as a part of their celebrations in the Old Testament. So when you tell a Nazarite you can't enjoy wine, you're saying, I want you to dislocate yourself from the culture and the environment, even the spiritual environments, that, that, that they want to kind of, they want to go into an environment where they, they experience a, a little bit of a nudge of an intoxication to, to celebrate. Listen, what God is simply saying about this is the Nazarite is to have no other influence other than God. The Nazarite is saying, and the prophetic generation that God is raising up is not going to be influenced by the intoxications of success or accomplishment or culture or environment. Even when it is religious in its nature or secular in its nature, God is raising up a people who are only going to be influenced by the spirit and hand of Almighty God. And I believe that God is raising up that kind of a culture today. A people that are not going to follow the fads of religious, of religious uh, uh, I don't know, what, what am I looking for? They're looking for a sensibility to try to follow the fads where other uh, models of forms of religion and success in churches. And so a pastor gets motivated, well, I want to grow, so I'm going to do what that church did, and I'm going to do what that church did, and I'm going to do what that church did. I'm here to tell you, you are blessed because you got men and women of God that know know how to seek God, know how to hear from God, and know what God has told them to do, and is giving themselves wholeheartedly what God has told them to do. That's why I'm convinced that this is a kind of culture, this church environment, Springs of Life, is a place where God is raising up a Nazarite, a prophetic generation, because they're going to be influenced by God, they're going to be influenced by a culture that's Miami, or that's Dade County, or that's about luxury or access, they're going to be influenced by the Word and the Spirit of Almighty God. Not only that, but think about it. When you're intoxicated, you get an altered perspective. You know, when you get intoxicated, you either get mean or you get happy. Some of you remember that back in the old days, right? You get mean or you get happy. You get an altered perspective, right? 
Well, if, if I'm a Nazarite, if I'm a, if I'm a prophetic generation, then I begin to develop an altered perspective that discovers and celebrates God in everything. Did you hear that? Look what the Bible says, 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. You know what the altar perspective is? How many Christians do you, have you run into, they don't see God in everything? Okay. That's a tough word. The, you know what the altered perspective is? The altered perspective is they discover and celebrate God in all things. Now, we just talked about the presence of God a few minutes ago, right? What is one of the very first things you learn about the presence of God? About God himself that makes him God. He is omnipresent. He's everywhere. Do you know that he is... He's in places you wouldn't go. Right? Because he's everywhere. He, he was in the concentration camps at Auschwitz. That's hard, to, that's, hard to, that's hard to swallow, isn't it? He's been in the brothels. He's there. And that's why when God judge us, judges us, it's because we've done everything we've done in his presence. We've done everything we've done. We've said everything we've said in his presence. Now the, the difference is when we sense God's presence, when we acknowledge God's presence, when we worship God's presence, isn't that God's presence isn't there. It's that we don't acknowledge it. We're not looking for it. So we come into the house of God and we sense his presence. Why? Because we're expecting to visit him here. And we also have the added promise that where two or three gather together, there he is. So we lay claim to that. So there's an acknowledged awareness that begins to develop in us, right? That God's here. And God's here. And what are we here to do? We're not here to, you know, to knit. We're not here to, you know, do tiddlywinks. We're here to worship. We have an intended purpose. Our intended purpose is to magnify God. Our intended purpose is to lean into his presence. Our intended purpose is to celebrate who he is. And so when we do that, when we come into the house of God and we begin to contentionalize seeking him and knowing him and celebrating him and acknowledging him and loving him and lavishing him with our words and our acknowledgments and our praises and our declarations, guess what? The environment intensifies. Why? Because God is where? He inhabits the praises of his people in other words we begin to release him into the environment as we release the word of his celebration the word of his presence he becomes more actively involved our sensibilities are tuned in our real come on we get into this church we got so much of the world on us all the stuff we've been fighting with all week all the things we've dealt with at work all the stuff we've had to handle on our jobs come on and we come in here, and it's like, man, we get to take that stuff off. We get to strip it off, and we get to just get into God's presence. Let him wash us with his word and wash us with his presence and wash us with his spirit. Come on. Wow. Listen. <clears throat> so, so when I say that God is in it all, that doesn't mean God created all the problems, but I can find God in everything. The difference between a prophetic generation is they can find God in even disaster. They can find God in even difficult situations. 
that can find God when it looks like all that's happening here is the enemy is winning. Do you remember that perspective when, that, when, when, when Elisha is standing there and, and the, the, the servant comes and says, man, we're surrounded. The enemy's here. They're at our doorstep. They're going to destroy us. And what did he pray? He said, open his eyes so that he can see that there's more for us than are against us. What was the difference? The difference was an altered perspective. One person all he could see was the enemy, but the prophet of God, the one with prophetic insight, saw that God was more involved than anybody else in that environment could realize. Hmm. What do we know? We know that all things, let's, let's amend that. We know that most things, some things, a few things, all things work together for good. To those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's me. That's you. We're called. God's working for me. God is making good for me. God is providing a way for me. Come on, somebody. He's in it. Even when it seems like a disaster, God is in it. And when I have a prophetic insight, I begin to see him in it. And I can glorify him in it. The other thing that happens, I'm talking about the no wine principle, is a prevailing contentment comes to us. Remember, we kind of get easy and lazy, and it's all, all, all's right in the world. A prevailing contentment that is not based on the world around them, but Christ in them. Listen, listen to what Paul said. He said something really profound. He said, I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I've learned both to be full and to be hungry, <laughs> to, both be, to abound and to suffer need. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And the next verse is, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, let's, let's, let's take this verse for what it says. Paul isn't saying like we, we stick it on our, you know, we tattoo it on us. We put it on a refrigerator, you know. And we think, and we think well, that means that anything I attempt, God's going to give me the strength to do it. But in honesty, that scripture is simply saying he gives you the power to be content. Whether you got plenty or whether you got nothing. Whether you're hungry or whether you're full. You can do it. Our problem is, is when we get hungry, we don't think we can do it. And when we're full, we're confident we can do it. And the perspective of the one who is Nazarite is, I can make it, and I can, I can make it in any environment, in any circumstance, no matter what God asks me to walk through, whether I walk, come on, if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. The thing that makes me content isn't what this world gives me, the environment that it produces in my life, the peace of the circumstances surrounding me. What gives me my contentment is that it is Christ in me, the hope of glory. That's what gives me contentment. I'm come, come on. Come on. Paul Bunyan is sitting in a prison. He's writing the greatest thing that's ever been written. John Bunyan is writing the greatest things that's ever been written in Pilgrim's Progress. And he's saying in this prison cell, a prison is a palace for me as long as God is there. And I can tell you, I've been in prison. I know what it's like to be there. 
I've been in prison in India for the gospel. And I was thrown in there, was told I was going to be there for 10 years. And God delivered me, and I had to find contentment in that environment. And the only way I could find contentment wasn't in my environment or my circumstances or whether the embassy was working for me or whether I had lawyers that were going to go or how unjust it was. None of that was going to give me contentment. The only thing that could give me contentment was this reality. Christ is with me, and if he's with me, then it's going to be okay. And if he is walking with me, I can make it. And his glory is going to be seen. His power is going to be manifested. It doesn't matter what I face. That's a Nazarite generation. The other thing, I, I don't know how much, I don't have much more time. No razor. <clears throat> no razor on their head. Allow their hair to grow. Now the hair in, in the biblical times meant glory, honor, strength. And for the Nazarite, it was identity. So if you were a Nazarite and you, you'd taken the vow, you know, maybe in the first week, two weeks, month, maybe people wouldn't notice you had a vow. But if it was a longer period of time, maybe a year or two, people know, oh, okay. Why haven't they cut their hair? Oh, they're under a Nazarite vow. That made them a target. They became, they became a symbol. So everybody was watching them more critically to make sure, oh, I wonder if they, I wonder if they took that carrot raisin muffin. Hmm. Because they weren't allowed raisins. Right? I wonder, I wonder if they went to the funeral of so-and-so. Oh, I wonder... I wonder if they went to the Shabbat service. Did they drink any wine? People begin to be, have you noticed that? When you, as soon as you identified yourself as a Christian, everybody became more critical of you in your secular environments. Anybody? As soon as you got into those secular environments, people, as soon as you identify, and that's the reason why a lot of believers won't do it. They don't want to be identified as a believer because, well, I don't want to, I don't want to damage my testimony. No. Declare boldly who you are in Jesus Christ and live the life in such a way that people become convinced of Christ in you. That's the challenge of our generation. And don't think it won't come. The Nazarite is to be, to be distinguished by their undiminished, unimpaired strength. The we all know that Samson was a Nazarite, right? He's one of the Nazarites called from birth. He was a Nazarite, and the secret to his strength, according to him, was his hair. Now, he had violated uh, the death issue. He had violated the wine issue. He was a philanderer. He was not a good man. But he understood that his hair was his strength. And it wasn't until his hair was cut that he lost his strength. Now, here's what we need to understand. We're not talking about physical strength. We're talking about strength of character, strength of spirit, strength of commitment, strength of devotion, strength of passion, strength of faith. Is anybody with me? A prophetic generation is going to be a generation that is strong in faith, strong in the Lord, strong in the power of his might, strong in their commitment, strong in their devotion. They're not going to be those that are going to be switched by the winds and the fades of doctrine. Listen, they're committed to their identity in Jesus Christ. Yes, I'm a Christian, and I'm not afraid to be labeled as one. Yes, I'm a believer, a passionate believer, a spirit-filled, a spirit-led believer. I believe that God is the answer to your issues. If you're sick, let me pray for you. If you've got an issue, let me seek God for you. Let me be a part of the answer in your life. And this is the environment that God is trying to raise up, a people that are committed to their identity in Jesus Christ. Look at what it says in Galatians 2.20. It was quoted earlier. I have been crucified with Christ, but I no longer live. But Christ lives in me, the life I now live in the body. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. But of him, you are in Christ. Somebody say, I'm in Christ. Come on, say it like you mean it. I'm in Christ. 
who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That's what Jesus has become for you. Another version says it this way. Everything that we have, right thinking and right living, a clean slate and a fresh start, comes from God by the way of Jesus Christ. That's why we have this saying, if you're going to blow a horn, blow a trumpet for God. The final thing is, is this hair represents walk, that you walk in a reflective praise. Everything we do is motivated by bringing glory to God. Listen, if you're identified as being somebody, somebody that has uh, a commitment to God, somebody who's devoted to God, here's what's important. Then, then why am I doing it? Am I, we all know that the, the condemnation that Jesus passed to the Pharisees and the scribes was what? That they wanted the best seats in the, in the, in the synagogue, they walked around in their big phylacteries, their royal robes, and they wanted the best seats and the honor, right? And they said that he's got, they've got their reward. And so a Nazarite could actually enter into a realm of spiritual pride because, oh, look at me. I've got a deeper co commitment and devotion to God than you do. But here's, here's what I think the hair really represents. It represents a reflective praise. No, I want everything I do to be motivated to bring glory to God. Now that I know people's eyes are on me, I don't want them to see me. I want them to see Jesus. Now that I know that people are looking at me, we, we, we saw how you, you've honor, you're honoring your pastors. They were talking about the deep responsibility of the pastor and how overwhelmed and dynamic it was and their own personal little experiences that they walked through the way. And you got little, little glimpses into their motives and their heart. And it was beautiful. I loved seeing it. It was a very dramatic piece. But I'm going to tell you something. When, when, when you step into that role, you all of a sudden begin to realize, boy, there are eyes looking at me. And how I, what I do and how I do things, the way I talk, the way I relate, the way I handle myself matters. And do I want them to glorify me by what I do or do I want Christ to be glorified through me? And that's the reflective praise piece, right? So whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do it all to the glory of God. The final piece, and I'm, I'm just going to finish here. I'd like to preach a lot more. I just don't have the time. No death. Now, if you think about this culture, you know, we have environments now where death is really kind of, we're segregated from death at a lot of levels. You know, today, if you want chicken, you go to the grocery store and buy yourself some chicken, right? But back in agricultural times, if you wanted chicken, you had to go to the barnyard and you grab a live chicken, and you have to kill the chicken so you could eat the chicken. Come on, right? Or if you, wanted, if you wanted steak, you had to go out to that little steer out in the pen. It's not a little pet that you named, you know, Buster. You're going to have to kill that animal so you can put him on your plate. Ain't nobody liking this conversation. I can feel it. Everything's turned in this room. I can, I, I'm just sensing it right now, Right? Death was a part of their life. In fact, they didn't have hospitals. And they didn't have hospice. And they didn't have, uh, you know, elderly care. So your, your elderly parents or grandparents, you all lived in the same room. You all slept in the same room. And if they died, they died oftentimes right next to you. And you didn't give them to somebody else to take care of them. They didn't have funeral directors. No, you as the family had to prepare the body. You had to make reparations. You had to handle things. You had to cleanse it. You had to do the ritual things. You had to take it out and you had to bury it. That's what you had to do. So when you say, when, when, when this vow says you can't 
be defiled by death. This was a dynamic issue. You're not to, listen, no defilement, loss or grief, not to associate with any death, even the death of a family member. You know what the Nazarite, the prophetic generation is? It associates with life and life-giving things and nothing else. Now think about this. God is saying to the Nazarite, I don't want you relating to death, even when it's close to you, even when it's relational with you. Didn't you hear Jesus say something very similar to that? You know, if you're going to be my disciple, he used the word hate. You've got to hate your father, your mother, your brother, your sisters, right? That's strong language, and yourself. And you've got to pick up your cross, you've got to follow me. That's strong language, isn't it? But have anybody in this room, have you, have you felt the price for living for God with your family, with friends, with people that mattered to you before you knew Jesus? But then when you met Jesus, instead of them drawing near to the life and the love that you just discovered, and not by your own doing, you weren't trying to push them away because they weren't believers, but they couldn't manage this new life, this new way of thinking that you had. They couldn't associate or relate to you anymore. It breaks your heart. It devastates you because we want them to know the same joy and the same love and the same peace that we have. But here's, here's what I want to say. The Nazarite or the prophetic generation is a fruitful generation. When you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples. This brings great glory to my Father. Are you with me? So the Nazarite is a fruitful believer. They're not, just, they're not just sitting in a pew. They're just not punching their spiritual clock. They're bringing in other lost people. They're discipling people. They're mentoring people. They're pouring into people. They're being fruitful in their ministry. The other thing is they're committed to Christ, and it is their deepest devotion. Come on, Jesus said it this way. If you want to be my disciples, you must what? Hate everyone else by comparison. Your father, your mother, your wife, your children, brothers and sisters. Yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. And if you do not carry your own cross, follow me. You cannot be my disciple. Now, you think God is saying, you know, reject your family? You think that's what he's saying? No, no, no. The, the answer to that is denying your own self, hating your own self. The idea is that I don't, I don't, I don't uh, celebrate myself above the cause of Christ. Anyone who comes to me but refuses to let go of father, mother, spouse, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even one's own self can't be my disciple. Anyone who wouldn't shoulder his own cross and follow behind me can't be my disciple. God is raising up a unique people. I'd like to talk about, and I'll just say this real quick, and I'm done. I've, I've gone past my time. There were three men called to be Nazarites from birth. The first one was Samson. The second one was Samuel. And the third one was John the Baptist. Now, when you understand these three men, they represent three dynamic things. Samson represents the warrior, deliverer. I believe a prophetic generation is going to rise up who are mighty in prayer and spiritual warfare and setting the standards to battle against the unrighteousness that exists in, in our nation and in the spirit of our culture. Samuel represents the worshiper. His whole goal was to reestablish the presence of God in the house of God within the mindset of Israel. And God raised him up when there was little word of the Lord heard, when there was little expressions of the presence of God. In fact, the presence of God had been lost under Eli. 
And Samuel came in and reestablished worship and established a culture of worship that was authentic and genuine in spirit. And I believe God is raising up a prophetic worship in this time. I heard that one of the songs that we just sang this morning was a song that was born out of an experience that somebody had and how God brought them through and brought them victory through incredible pain. That's a prophetic thing. And I believe there's a prophetic thing in your worship that matters to God. And the final piece is the way maker, John the Baptist. And that represents an evangelical fervor, an ability to prepare the way for Jesus' second coming that has a passion for the lost, is willing to call people to the reality of truth. And I believe God's raising up that generation even in this house. So I want you to do something with me. Stand with me. I, I apologize. I took a little longer than I was supposed to. <clears throat> I'll just say my ears were plugged and I didn't hear what they told me. No. I hope this witnesses to you at some level. But if you're sensing that God, maybe through this message, maybe there's something that's been stirring inside of your spirit for some time now. But if you're sensing in your heart, in your spirit, that, you know, I'm really, I really believe that God's called me to be a part of that prophetic generation. I believe that I'm, God's calling me to a spiritual Nazarite level of commitment as a, as a warrior, as a worshiper, as a way maker. That God's calling me to a place of a greater devotion, a greater significance, a greater impact. Then I want you to do something in acknowledgement of that. And I want you to just step out in faith and say, I want to present myself before the Lord. And I want to say, Lord, I want you to do something in my spirit today that's going to transform the way I see my, my call in this world. It doesn't matter whether you're acknowledged as a pastor or not. I, I believe I'm called to something significant for the purpose of God's glory in the earth. And so right now, all over the place, if, if you believe that, if you believe at some level you have some part in that, I want you to just simply lift your hand right where you are. I want you to just reach out to God with a passionate desire. And Lord, right now, in the name of Jesus, I'm just going to pray over you, and I want you, I want you to just accept this release in the name of the Lord. And Father, I believe that right now, in the name of Jesus, that you're releasing, you're releasing the prophetic generation in this church. I believe you've called this place to a dynamic time, to a dynamic environment, to a dynamic uh, place in this culture, in this city. And Lord, these are your people. They are the ones that you are using to be seeds of life, springs of life everywhere they're planted. Father, in their jobs, in their schools, in their homes, in their environments. Father, I bind the, the forces of death that are all around them that want to, that want to violate the spirit of life that's within them. Father, I pray that today they will not be afraid to proclaim you in grace and in power that a new fresh boldness will come upon them. That Lord, the power of your Holy Spirit will infuse them today and that they will sense the anointing breaking every yoke in the name of Jesus. Father, I thank you that today today there is breakthrough happening in hearts and homes that Father, they are, they are literally being led and guided by your grace, by your spirit. 
Lord, they're not being influenced by this world and its systems. They're being influenced by the spirit and power and word of Almighty God. And Father, I thank you that today there's going to be great success. Lord, I declare, I declare in the name of Jesus that this environment will not be able to handle those that are longing for this kind of a passionate release of the word of God. Lord, this building can't hold what's getting ready to happen in this church. Lord, this building cannot contain what God is getting ready to send to them. Lord, in new souls, in new lives, in the brokenhearted, in the wounded, in the injured that are wanting the true, the real, the authentic. Father, I thank you that the very environment of this church is going to be the presence of God. So dynamic, so sustaining, so saturating that they will not be able to even move without the deepest sense of reverence and awe of Almighty God. Father, I thank you that today is a day, a reformation day, a hinge pin day that you're going to bring greater glory. Father, I thank you for expanded grace, expanded wisdom, expanded anointing, expanded influence, expanded power, expanded capacity in the name of the Most High God. And Lord, we receive it from you and we rejoice in it in Jesus' name. Come on, somebody in the house, give God a praise.